Barry Primus um, has worked with pretty much the major directors, Scorsese, um, Coppola, Mark Rydell. He loves acting so much. I've had the privilege to know Barry for a long time, so I've heard these uh, stories before, and that's why I really wanted to um, get them documented and share them with you all. Let's document them. Let's document it. All right. <laughs> no further ado, <laughs> Barry Primus. I always wanted to be part of a permanent theater. I never wanted to be uh, on the street. I still don't understand it. We train, we train, we train. Well, what are we trained for? To do commercials, great commercials. I was great in a television show. <laughs> I was great. But what, you know, but the, but, but the idea of the actor as informing the society, as, a, you know, having a bigger role. When I got into Lincoln Center, we were headed towards being a national theater. We were going to have these great plays like Streetcar, Glass Menagerie, that you could, like a library, bring back three times a year, five times a year. Like you go to the library because then you say, you know, a book doesn't have to be uh, used all the time, but it still has to be in the library. Which they do in other countries as well. In England, they have a national theater. They bring, back, yeah, sure. they bring back that when I was in Russia, they brought back a, a thrilling production of a sequel and they bring it back, you know, uh, you know, through, uh, every six or seven months with that group, with a group that's been together 20 years. It's been redirected a couple of times, but 20 years. And, and the audience has a chance to say, what, what is that of a salesman? Yeah, you know, April 24th, go see. Of Kazan's production of Death of a Salesman, which is still being used. Do you follow me? Yeah, and it seems counterintuitive to some because of the commercial aspect. Theater is supposed to make money, right? But with that, like you can go to the Louvre and see all great works of great paintings whenever you want. Why not have a theater where you can just see the great plays? It's not making that much money anyway anymore. You know, it's making some, but it it can be treated more like a art. You know, Arthur Miller was our in-house playwright. We did four plays of his. He said he was going to hate one. Well, I was going to do Stanley in the in a, in a, a re, uh, redo of uh, a rethink of, of Streetcar, and. He's going to do the back eye and new new translations. He said, "I'm warning you now." I'm taking young actors, and we're finding our way in a new home, and it'll take several years before we can get going. It takes years to build the Comédie Française. It takes years to build Joan Littlewood's theater. It takes years to build the Moscow Art Theater. I, so bear with me. I don't expect we're going to make money. And this was to bankers who were finances, and they said, oh, that's all right, sure. Well, I'm sure gadget, they were all thrilled with that. And then when it started not making money, they said, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> what, what is this about? You know, you know what I mean? And we didn't get great reviews. And because I said, no, we don't get great reviews. That's part of the thing. We're, we're, we're these are actors, young actors, we're trying to, to, to put it together. He didn't want to do it. Kazan told me on the subway, Kazan used to use the subway, you know. He would never use the tank. He was cheap in the first place. And secondly, 
his analysts looked uptown when I was, I lived along that thing, so I used to see him after see his analysts. He says, I don't talk about my mother, let's only go for work, Barry. I'm not interested anymore about my mother and all that shit. But at work is what interests me. That, that's why I go inside in the way. And, and to get inside on guys like you are in my company. So it's a, but when the move, when when the place was failing and it wasn't doing very well, after two years of work on it, he said I shouldn't have taken this job, you know. Because we had Jose directing, Bill Ball directing, Clerman directing, and he supposed his job was supposed to, and him directing, and his job was supposed to be do a play once in a while, and meanwhile, be the overseer of your productions. You know, come in, say things. He said, "I don't give a shit about anybody else's work. I don't give a shit. All I care about my own work, Barry. And everybody who's any good will say the same thing." I should never have taken this job. So I said, well, God, you didn't get the job. What did you take it for? He said, there was nobody else. He was the singular name who could put together a national theater. It was, we can't even, I can't even express today what Kazan meant to us into that period. He was, he was the theater. He was everything. He was movies too. He just had this thing about him. And, and to be honest, I didn't get him in his great period. I, I got him after that. He was, his wife was sick. He was having a lot of marital problems, and um, he was in the midst of an affair, a big affair. And he had fought with Arthur Miller terribly, you know, over the uh, names. And now he was returning to Arthur Miller. You know, they, they made up during this, after the fall, the, the first play that we did. He, his heart was in movies, he told me. That's how I first met him. I, I met him uh, in a little tiny office. It's like a, you know, it's like a place you'd go to, like a, a chiropodist and, and a dentist, and would have one door. It's just that kind of thing. It's like a you know, like a little door. You know, you'd think you know, next door was the dentist, next door was a place you'd you'd buy old magazines or baseball cards from. It's just like a little tiny dump. You know, I go to the door. The door opens. There's a little guy, gray hair, fierce looking guy. With the kind of T-shirt, you know, that's this way, not the whole T-shirt, you know, like a, like a super wear. He says, "Barry," he says, "Yeah, yeah." Well, grab your hand like you've never seen in your life. Come on in, you know, sit down. Remember that a little tiny office, all crammed with books and shit like that. He says, "Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Where are you from?" He was interested in because my father came from Bulgaria, so he was uh, he was interested in talking a little bit about about when they were making a movie about. You've seen America, America. Yeah, um, with you. And later on, Sandy didn't use me because I was too tall. He said, what a mistake. <laughs> he, he's, but he said to me, I'll see you. I'll be seeing you around, okay? I'll be seeing you around. I did one terrible thing that I regret terribly. During the conversation, he said to me, are you a good actor? I thought about it for a while. I said, well, it's a hard question to answer. So I said, yeah, I am. I said, but I'd be better if I got more work, like Sullivan. He went, <laughs> Like, that's a terrible thing you just try to do to me. I mean, it was just so... So, so anyway, when I got in Lincoln Center, he, he said, I told you I'd see you again, Barry, you know, so... He was very interesting in the sense that we were very charismatic. Everybody said that. Norman Mailer said he was the most charismatic person for men and women he'd ever met. He was charismatic. He was full of it, too. He used whatever... He, there wasn't any real... You didn't know... People were very distrusting of him because you never knew. He was all, it's only one end in his mind, to realize himself as a conscious artist. Mm -hmm. He said that in college. He said, my dream is to be a conscious working artist. 
And he never let go of that. I don't think there's a phone call, a meeting. There was nothing casual about him. If he called you, it was for a reason. If he stopped you, it was for a reason. If he said hello to you, it was for a reason. There's nothing casual. It was all directed towards this obsession he had, being fully realized artist. I'll tell you a story, but probably we should not even say about it. Once I was Arthur Miller had a, did I, maybe that's what I tell you? Arthur Miller had a character of Lee Strasberg in After the Fall. He had a what? A character about Lee Strasberg. Jason Lee Strasberg? Yeah, and it was a big part. He loathed Lee Strasberg, Arthur Miller, because he felt that Lee had filled Marilyn full of, you know. Oh, right, right. And she was going to be a great actress, and she couldn't hold it. And he considered that one of the reasons, many, many reasons, I'm sure, for Marilyn's demise. That she couldn't be, she's a simple girl, and that's it. she just couldn't go where he wanted her to go. But Lee was putting in front of He had that. He was in the piece. In a quite a detrimental way. So we did a reading, and Arthur read the whole play. I think it took us two days. I don't think the lead in the play, Jason Robarts, ever forgave him, because he had to sit there for two days while Arthur read the play. But Kazan, in his wisdom, always knew he did the work on the play. He has the right to, you know, do what he wants to do. He wanted, so he read it. He read the play. We're going down to Ratner's restaurant down below, and kind of like the end of the first day reading. Because in the, in the elevator, never wastes a moment. Now he wants to figure out what is, is this actors and his company is like. So he's trying to figure out things, how who they are. What do you think of the reading? What do you think? What do you think of the play, Barry? What, what do you think of the play? Always very blunt. What do you think of the play? I said I, oh, I like it. It's just good. He says, Yeah, it's good. I think it's good. I think we're going down the elevator. He says, we can. We can. We're going to make it work. So I was always sort of a little rebellious and a little always chiming in. So I said, the only thing is, I said, I don't get that Lee Strasberg character. It just seems, you know, a little, I said, what is it doing in the play? It's yeah, a good question. He said, I agree with you. I agree with you, Barry. Let's let Arthur take it out. I don't know what he meant. Was, I'm not going to take it out. Let him take it out. So we're doing a reading the next day, two days later. And I hear Arthur say, I'm sitting right next to Gadge, watching. Arthur says, Gadge, he says, uh, I want to do a reading again, but I want to take the, I'm going to take Lee's part out of here. For some reason, I feel, at the moment, I feel uncomfortable with the way it's going to be right, but I don't feel uncomfortable. Because Anne says, Arthur, really? It's a very good character. It lends a lot to the, to the thing. And, and we see uh, some certain things about the character we were un not revealed by anybody else. But I see your point. <laughs> I'll take it out today and, and see how it how it goes. And with that, it's looking down. I think that's interesting. Maybe we should take, we could take it out if you'd like. And as he's doing that, he looks up. I'm over there, and he goes, "Okay, take it out." He remembered our conversation, and he wanted to let me know I got it. What did he go to the midst of all that to remember that little point that he had made in the elevator with me? Let him take it out. He was saying, "See, that's how you do it." And I mean, the, Arthur crazy. Miller. I mean, Arthur Miller had just come up with the idea to take it out himself. Yeah. Well, he was fielding the idea out to Kazan. Kazan went the opposite way. He said, "I don't know. I don't know, Arthur. I don't know." Wow. Then he said, yeah, okay, take it out, try it, take it out. And he was saying, eventually Arthur will, in his wisdom, 
in his time, I will help. I'll say things. He'll take it out. But I'm not going to take it out because it's better that the person who created it follow his own instincts. And who am I to with the works that he put into that? Let him get there. It's like a person, like when you when someone gives you orders to edit something, mm-hmm. or you want to edit this, you don't go to the edit right away, right? You kind of work it down, don't you, Adam? I let it marinate. It depends what the edit is, but you know, I mean, I'm I'm very open to suggestions to people who understand the work, but uh, I like to let it marinate in my head for a bit and then figure out my way to do it. Yeah. But this is very trusting. I mean, this is this is that's a whole new level, what you're talking about. Like he just kind of knew that that Miller would get there. Well, he trusted Miller enough. He had enough confidence in himself to know now is not the time to go after what I want. I would have been anxious. I would have thought, I got to accomplish this. I would too. But not him. He said, it would be more destructive for me to stop him from doing something and to let him go on with it. And then we'll see as I shape the play around it. I don't know if he thought it would happen that fast. Right. But of course, I was thrilled to be taken into his confidence that we had taken into his confidence. And it also, of course, in a small way, was complimenting me that my observation was true. So he was reconnecting our conversation. I mean, that, that requires, you know, <laughs> you remember Jack's story? And I'm done. Jack had a meeting with him. Jack had a meeting. We all had to have meetings with, with Kazan. I'm so tired of talking about Kazan. He's just such a big, a big, <laughs> big fucking, such a big fucking figure. But he's, he's just I'm tired of. But he, he and we got to move on. But but he, we all had a meeting with everybody to find out who they were. You know, he wanted to know more about them. He didn't do that much with me, but he, he wanted to know about Jack. Jack was very shy with him, and I think intimidated. Mm. He knew he maybe knew more about his talent or whatever it was, but he more developed maybe or whatever, but he, he never got close to Gadge. He never felt warm towards, that they couldn't feel warm towards each other. But he had a meeting with Jack. And he respected Jack tremendously as a craftsperson. But with me, it's different. He um, was a little bit more relaxed. I think he came to my house. He's a little more relaxed. But Jack was very tight with him. And he had a meeting with Jack, and, and he asked Jack about who he slept with and what women he slept with and, you know, and uh, what kind of women does he like. And then Kazan shared with him what kind of women he likes and what, how does he like to do it, where does he do it, and, you know, what kind of you know places does he like to do it in because Kazan is doing movie theaters or whatever like that. And then they talked a little bit about Harlem, where, where Jack came from, and he told him some very, you know, risque stories of his life and with the jazz people and... And uh, he shared some confidences about some other very, you know, risque things. And when they were all done, Kazan said, okay, thanks, Jack. And I went downstairs, and, and Kazan started walking. They started walking, and he started walking with Kazan. And they, they walked for blocks. And I was following him like he was my father. I don't know where he was going. I was just walking with him. And he was walking, and then Kazan stopped. He said, Jack, I'm going over there. Where are you going? (laughs) But he said, it was like my father. And, of course, Jack, who has no, you know, we don't know what his story is, Kazan gave him the feeling he'd been seen. He'd been seen by somebody and appreciated by somebody who, who knew about those things and confirmed him, something he probably missed all his life. Right. And so he was... 
in law. He was just following him around. It's a very touching story. Which is a skill. So that, that's a talent. It's a talent that Jack actually acquired. Because I mean, you know, when I met him, I went into audition for him like everyone does. And you go and you do a monologue for Jack. And he just, he just lets you do it. But like my experience was, I don't know what yours was like, after I did it, he just, you know, I stood up. He's like, all right, stand up. Told me exactly who I was in ways that no one ever really had before. And he was spot on. And I, you know, and in that moment, and I wanted to be, I consciously wanted to be open for him, you know, obviously to, you know, show him I could do the work and I wanted to do the work. He just had that insight. He has that, he reads people better than probably anyone I've met. Well, Jack has, Jack, Jack. Jack is a conundrum yet to himself. Yeah. And, um, he's a, a master teacher and and an artist. You know, he was a uh, Jack Walsh. He was a terrific actor. So uh, I remember in, when we were working, we spent two years training to be in the Lincoln Center. You know, before we got in the Lincoln, not two years, that was Jerry Seaman. We spent nine months working in a, a training before they decided who would be in the company. And Jack got to play the king in Hamlet. And he had a, real, a couple of really thrilling moments. When he says, give me more light, he was just terrific. And it was mesmerizing. I was always a little, a little intimidated by Jack. He had a friend, Stanley Beck. They both were Strasbourg people, and they knew a lot. I had studied with Uta Hagen, but I was basically, um, uh, I was basically intuitive in my work. Basically intuitive. I didn't really have... Uh, if I sympathized with something, I could do it very well. I didn't have a technique in terms of, you know, knowing uh, how to get to very distant parts or things like that, uh, or parts that I didn't particularly empathize for. And that combined with uh, a basic fear of being in environments that I didn't know made it very hard for me to to uh, to be in place right in the beginning. We had to be with people who didn't know how I worked or I didn't know how they worked and I would get hired. I mean, I was very good in class with Uta Hagen. I was one of her favorite people. Or I blossomed on the Chiron Robbins because he, we loved each other. Or Kazan, because I knew Kazan would like me a lot. But when it came to the, uh, you know, getting a job and a reading and then showing up for rehearsal, Took me a long while to figure out how uh, uh, who I was, basically because I didn't come from a background uh, where I, I was secure about about who I was. Were you in the actor's studio at this point? No, came to the actor's studio uh, after I did the uh, Changeling with Kazan. Strasberg came down, and he told I think Jamie Sanchez, by the way, who was that guy? Tell him to come down here. So I realized that Strasbourg was uh, uh, kind of telling me that if I auditioned, I, I might get in. Uh, I auditioned with the actor too when I was 17 or 16 with George Siegel, an actor. Uh, I auditioned with, um, what's the play about the guy who thinks he's gay? Uh, uh, Beauty and Sympathy. I did, and I did that. And uh, they told me to come back when I got older. So. It was only 16 or 17. But that to me was, I used to walk by it and I knew about it. I was in a church and, you know, we were all mesmerized by the movie Waterfront. And this is where Marlon Brando went, or, or, or James Dean. 
So I used to walk by it, you know, and uh, at that time getting the actors to me was a, was a big deal. Are we in the hands of people like that today? I don't know if they see that kind of profound commitment to something like that. Maybe it's years and years of being schooled as an actor, working with the group, going through all that, you know? But today, people don't seem to want to be artists. They seem to want to be innovators or different or talked about or creating something. But that kind of rich thing in the tradition of humanistic art, I think, is not, not so easy to get today. You could say with Marlon and Streetcar, it's interesting that he felt he owned that because where he gets very violent because Marlon was a very sweet, extremely sensitive person who did march banks on Broadway, and, you know, I remember Mama and all like that. But he had seen him do that uh, play that he produced, Truckline Cafe, where he had a psychic breakdown on stage. And also I think he approached Marlon to get his violence using what Marlon had by getting Marlon to be hurt so that he could spill out his guts rather than getting him to be sadistic. That would, that would not have worked with someone like, like Marlon. That thing of the kernel of the play is something we don't, we don't, we don't teach. The great performances of like, you know, Jimmy Dean or Brandon, the, Dean in, in, in East of Eden has a catharsis he needs to do that. He absolutely needed to be angry at his father and to let all that out, knowing his relationship with his father and what Kazan would keep plying him with, implying it. That's when performances become super great, when it's a catharsis for the actor. He must, he must do this. Kazan's whole thing was to get you where you must do it. You know, he, Carl Malden, when he was doing All My Sons, said, when he finds out that his father's been betrayed and all my sons and he's in prison and all that, and he comes, he comes to him and Kazan drove him to the place where he said he started to swoon. He got so upset and so angry that he started to swoon. And then he let him off the hook. Kazan always wanted people to drive them to the furthest possible way that they could go and back off and say, okay, now you, now you own it. We developed a play called The Nervous Set, and we went to Broadway with it, and it was about beatniks. It was about beatniks, and I played Jack Kerouac. What? You played Kerouac? Yeah, I played Kerouac, and uh, Kerouac came opening night and uh, sat at the Henry Miller Theater in the aisle, drunk, in the aisle. Uh, so it was not a... It was the handsomest man I'd ever seen up till that point. He looked like Eddie Cochran in uh, the French... Uh, active in B-movies in, in, in France, uh, trench coat and a cigarette in his mouth and, you know, hair all over. And the absolute epitome of a romantic uh, beatnik, very articulate. And, uh, and I had seen him down, down in the village uh, when, when he, after he had written On the Road. And, you know, he was, uh, we can talk about that sometime. Though. What did he think of your interpretation? He didn't say. He was too drunk, I think, or too too added. <laughs> he was a pretty unhappy guy. And uh, I don't... I think somebody told me that... Uh, we used to publish him. That one was, his first publisher uh, was a guy who ran that... who ran the improvisational theater that I was in. He had a magazine called Neurotica. 
Erotica was a famous magazine, and uh, Kerouac's first stories, I think, were published in Erotica. And he, after On the Road got published, he had uh, Town and Country and Subterraneans and a few other books, Drama Bomb, Dharma Bombs, Drama Bombs. Dharma. Dharma, Dharma Bomb, Dharma. And that he never wrote again, that he couldn't uh, write after... Uh, after uh, On the Road happened. These are all now books that have been written. I don't know if that's true, but hmm. I think it probably Can is. you see a change in his style. Uh, I mean, you definitely, after, after On the Road and Dharma Bums, which is actually a really good book, um, you see the change in style and like books like Big Sur and, and the later ones like Vanity of Delos. Did he write those afterwards? Yeah, but they're kind of, you, you can feel the alcohol effect on it, especially in Big Sur, I think. You know, it's, it's almost... Yeah. It's very hard to grasp onto. So you were technically in the actor's studio before you'd even done feature films. I was in the actor's studio uh, when I got my first feature film. My first film was with Marty Ritt, who actually was in the group theater called The Brotherhood, which was like an early godfather. Kirk Douglas. Yeah, the Kirk Douglas. The second one was Puzzle of the Downfall Child. See, that one says introducing Barry Primus when you watch it. That's why I thought it was your first film. Well, that was quite an introduction because that's a great movie. Did you like it? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? Didn't Jerry uh, Shatzman do a beautiful job? An amazing job. It's exquisite. Amazing. I mean, it's, it, you watch because we you know watched a lot of the '70s films, and there's a certain grit, um, especially in, like some of the Jack Starrett films that watched and, and others. But with Shatzberg's films, it's exquisite, and even his first film. I think that was his first movie. That was his first film. It just has this timeless. Well, he was a famous, famous photographer, right? And I got the role. Uh, you know. I had gone out here to do uh, a test with Sam Spiegel for the, the, the Chase with Marlon Brando and um, Spencer Tracy at that time. And uh, he, they wanted me to do it. Arthur wanted me to do it, Arthur Penn. But this other guy who I was playing against was a contract player, Robert Redford, and he liked my role better, so I, I was out. But during that time, Arthur had said to me, Barry, if we're going to use you, I need an unknown to play against you. Uh, Jane Fonda did it, uh, finally. I said, well, I know somebody who's in my company. Who's, he said, I said, Faye Dunaway. She's she's very beautiful, and she's a good actress. And, and I think it, it pointed uh, Arthur towards meeting her and then Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, when, and, and all that happened. So when Puzzle came along, she was very much on you know, to get me to... to to, to do it. I don't know. I only saw a piece of it last night. I hadn't seen it in 15 or 20 years or whatever. Uh, what did you think of me in it? I don't know. It's great. Well, you're basically playing, I mean, if I'm, huh? not, if I'm not wrong, you're playing Jerry Schatz. I am. This is Jerry an autobiographical oh, Very role. much the hair and the whole thing, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you, you're playing off of her um, incredibly well, which I, I don't know if that was difficult. Or, I feel like it would not be hard to act with her at all because she's given you yeah. so much. Well, you know, I had a hard time doing that part. Yeah. And I'll tell you a great story. I, I After the movie opened, I was walking down the street and out of the um, bar comes running Al Pacino. Al, I got fired from play and I replaced him with, with Joe Papp. And... Um, no reason they should have gotten fired. You know, he was doing great, but uh, but but Joe didn't understand. He had to work a certain way. He hired me. He tried to fire me too, but 
I said to Joe, you know, you fired Al, he's a wonderful, and they're going to fire me. Well, you, you should really get fired. And, you know, and he let me stay. With her. But Al, Al, she comes running out of the bar and he says, I saw that movie yesterday uh, that you did. What today? Barry, what's the matter with you? You didn't do anything. You should have you know, really created more, done more, like, like that. I understand what he meant. So that night, Elaine May invited me to her house. They were doing a movie called Mickey and Nicky, and it was John Cassavetes was in there. But Peter Cassav Falk. Huh? Peter, Peter Falk. Falk. Peter, yeah. Meisner's in that movie. Huh? Sandy Meisner is in that film. I didn't know that. He's the Don. I didn't know that. Anyway, when I got there, she John couldn't make it to uh, to uh, for the rehearsal, so she was asking me if I would improvise with uh, Peter. So I, I I went up to her house. She used to like to rehearse at ten or eleven at night, and she would get in the closet when we'd improvise, so she would get in the way, write down the stuff. So we were in the. In, she was doing it, and when I met Peter, I said Peter, you know Barry, you know you know. I just invited Barry to. Have you met him? And he said. Barry, he says, I saw your movie today, uh, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. You didn't do anything in it. You were great. <laughs> so I went yeah. from from one person telling me, you didn't do anything, you were terrible, you, you didn't do anything. And then I thought about it. I said, well, what did they mean? Your unwillingness to kind of put up with her mania, whatever she's, the world that she's right. in, you know, you don't, you say, I have to go at some point there, right? You know, after a while, she devolves her whole story. It starts out as a very nice conversation between the two of you as old friends, right? You don't know your history, but then it devolves into this madness that she's going. And there's a point where you recognize that it's clear that you've You've recognized, oh, she's like, she's, she's out of it, you know, and there, like, there's nothing you can do for her. And then at the end, you say, you know, I have to go. And then that last conversation that you have on the beach, on yeah. the beach, that's, I mean, what's an, one of the, that's an incredibly heartbreaking scene because she's saying, oh, isn't it great? We never had an affair. You're my only friend. You're the only person who never was interested in me that way. And you say, we did. <laughs> we, we did. It was my first film, and I, I, uh, I felt frightened because the cinematographer, very good cinematographer, he was to do Midnight Cowboy, but he, because of Jerry, they were doing high fashion. The movie was about high fashion. He had these little ink, the inkies here, and inkies. I, I couldn't move out of a shot. I was very hemmed in. And I really didn't understand, you know, what it was. And it had been a battle for me not to sign a contract because it's produced by Paul Newman and 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 his partner, Foreman. I didn't know. Wow. Yeah. And he wanted me to sign it. I didn't want to sign it. Seven years. And I, I didn't want to do it. Everything scared me about seven years. Once off of the contract, I had to go to Universal for seven years. I didn't do it. Stanley Beck did it. But but I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I have a phobia about that, whatever it was. Anyhow... Faye interceded and, and got me to to, to, to them to drop the, uh, the the thing. But anyway, I was nervous and I was underwater. I felt, and then I looked at the movie and said, "Oh, kind of works," because the character is, you know, not sure about so many things. That the state that I was in was working can work for the movie. That happens in movie acting. Today, if I were to do it. 
I would have added in a few more elements. I would have added more sexuality and probably been more conscious of my of of of, of my being underwater, which would have allowed me to um, just it just allowed me more room. But it was it was hard. It was a hard thing. I tell you one thing. As a director, I learned. You know, the scene on the beach was shot like the second day. Oh, the animal? And, you know, it's the classic thing of all time. We have a line. She says, after all we've been through together, <laughs> we haven't been through shit. Yeah. We just we haven't done anything yet. And now we're shooting this scene, you know. The only thing that saved me was, I didn't know anything about filmmaking. I couldn't find on the beach where the camera was. I didn't know where they were. It was a 250-millimeter film, you know, shot very, very tightly at that time, so far away. So home. he was far away shooting you guys up close. Yeah. There so I could not. There guys who do that. I could, I could not. It's amazing. I didn't know where they were. So because I didn't know where they were, I was kind of like rehearsing. Right. Saying the lines and doing it. And Faye was acting up a storm, and I kept thinking, what are you acting so much for? We don't even have cameras on our feet. Later on, when I saw it, I realized we were on top of one another. Well, it surprises me what you said when we were starting out about the fear, because, you know, my my knowledge of your work is always, you know, before I knew you, I knew you from, like, uh, Absence of Malice and the, right. a lot of, you know, Boxcar and, and all the Mark Rydell films uh, specifically, but I was always very impressed by how relaxed you are as an actor, and you well, have this natural relaxation. When I think of some other wonderful people like Robert De Niro and people like that, the thing that marked them from the beginning was their confidence, a tremendous amount of confidence. Your movie, The Maestro, really um, captures um, the love of the highest art, really, probably music, and, and it really captures people's love of that, you know? I think that music is very. I think that movie is very poetic. Oh, thanks, man. And I hope people see it. I hope so too. I mean, it's funny because one of the one of the ways we got there to what you're describing was, you know, it wasn't my script. It was something that yeah. I worked on. Well, as I got there, kind of goes back to something that Arthur Miller had said at some, at some point that I I came across early when I started writing, which is what is you know how he gets the theme, how he how he decides upon the theme, and I'm going to completely bastardize what he said, but effectively that he doesn't start out with a theme he just starts going and about at the midway point the theme presents itself and then he writes it down tacks it on the wall and he's got his theme whereas you know when i started writing it was very much the opposite i had an idea in mind of what i wanted to say and and themes that i wanted to implement and it ends up wagging the dog and in, in a not good way that was kind of the experience with maestro it's like we're we're going through, this is a true story. It's based on real people. The people are involved in the production. How do we make this? How do we find this, um, what it's about? And that's really how it happened, you know, in, in working with the actors and working on the script, we realized, no, this is a film about what it is to be an artist and what it is to be validated as an artist and, and what's important about that. No, what, what I got out of the movie, which is, is, is refreshing and we've t touched on is that that uh, art has its own rewards. Not, we're not, it's not, none of them were celebrities. Right. They, they weren't given celebrity, but it's not, does that mean, that, that doesn't mean that they didn't have worth. They're trained to be not worthy, 
but successful. That's how we're brought up. I mean, all when I go to, you know, I teach, you know, in the school and, and I see all the courses are about making it in the world. Right. There are no courses on the humanities anymore. It's result driven. It's not, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you're gonna, you, it's about success. It's not about being. It's about success. It's not about worth in a way. No, nobody's teaching them that these things impinged upon people and changed them. Rembrandt or whoever it is. Or these great people are what you're going for. No, it's just, it's just let's get the product out there. You know, the problem is, of course, there are a lot of technical problems in the world. Making movies is a very technical thing. You got to know a lot about this. You got to know a lot about that. But at the same time, you can't lose sight of what thrilled you originally. We didn't talk about Scorsese at all, but I want to jump ahead. Jump ahead. So we don't so we don't miss out on the opportunity to talk about your portrayal of Henry David Thoreau. Let's talk about yeah. it. That's Someone some... I did not work with. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're, it's on the YouTube, the whole thing. One of the few. Well, I actually did a, a short on him. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, my God. You knew that. We watched it. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. How's that short? Interesting. It's pretty yeah. epic. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I, I haven't mean, seen it. Just to frame it for people, basically, you're playing Henry David Thoreau in conversation with modern day political figures. All right. Or figures such as Rosa Parks. Right. She's in it. B.F. Skinner. Um, right, right. Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, and, and, no, and a few right. others. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I got a sense from the credits that it was financed by like Encyclopedia Britannica. No, yeah, publishing. I think Encyclopedia. So it's basically a book trailer in a sense. It's yeah, it was like part. A, it was shown in museums. It was shown in schools. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. um, now we went up to Walden Pond. That's that's, oh, that's actually Walden yeah, Pond. Yeah, we shot it there. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's fantastic. Well, and you actually, Rosa Parks, like you were talking to Rosa Parks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's amazing. Right, right. Yeah, so About civil disobedience. Right? Civil, right. civil disobedience. I don't remember. You're uh, the only person who ever acted with Rosa Parks. Right. No, well, there, there you go. <laughs> there was one line that stayed with me more than anything, and I think it's the title of one of his uh, books or essays, which is that in, in wildness is the preservation of the world. That's wonderful. Yeah. What, did, what, what does that mean to you, that? That, that line or that, that phrase. Passion. Look, we all become, you know, what we're all trying to do this because in some way regular life isn't for us in some way, you know, that just doesn't work. You know? Maybe that's a negative thing to say, but, you know, I, 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 I really enjoy people. My wife is like that. And I think your father, Raul Julia, was, was, was like that in a lot of ways to enjoy what is here. But I think because of maybe my own background, what was there was I didn't enjoy uh, the compulsion to to uh, be imaginative, to be in an imaginative world, an alternate world, you know, it's a wildness, something, you know, it's a preservation of the world. But it's, it's interesting that as I go along, I see the necessity for structure. The stronger the structure, the more you can be wild. I think it was Flambe Flambe Flaubert who mm -hmm. said, uh, who said um, great thing. He said, I like to be as conventional and bourgeois as possible in my life so I can be as crazy as I want when I write. In other words, I don't have to act out anything. And, you know, I'm trying to uh, make a movie now, and so a lot of the, the, uh, the, the preparation for the film is to create some sort of structure 
And hopefully when we do it, I can be intuitive. If you want to say, I, I am wild. But I can't do it without some sort of form. I think right. movies are such a cumbersome, you know. I, I think you as a director uh, embrace that very well, the two things. You have a good sense of structure, right? It, I'm getting, I've gotten better at it. Like I was saying in, in the beginning, I was used to start with all theme and energy and just go. And sometimes you get lucky and sometimes more than more often than not, you kind of crash and burn halfway through. I guess we all have, we all have to balance when to use our heads and when not to. <laughs> it's, you know, when you say you start with, with the theme, I did that too. Um, I think too much of the trappings of the of structure, though, lead to the formulaic. And that's what, what I try to avoid. You know, like every film that now has like the save the cat mandate to, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a book, a screenwriting book that kind of is like an industry thing now where everyone follows this. It's not like Sid, Sid Fields, has it changed? And um, it No, it's a little bit, it's more specific than Sid Fields. Sid Field was just kind of like three act structure mm -hmm. and, and how to do that. This is a model that uses archetypes and and different films in different genres and and it posits that there's only so many kinds of stories i think there's eight or ten or something like right. that and this is how you tell them and like you got to state your theme on this page and this to have stab it on this page and it's not that that doesn't work it does i mean then they can but to say that's the only structure uh i think leads to you know part of you know what you see today which is the same thing over and over again yeah you know? I think everybody's hoping and wanting to be meaningful. Just we don't know how to harness it. That's kind of like my theme, but I write. Everybody wants to be good, but no one knows how to, to quite. You know, Arthur Miller says in Time Bends, a very moving thing, he says, you know, deep in my heart I know that we're not living the best way possible that we don't live the best way possible. Mind you, that's a person who was a communist and a person who was a socialist, a person who was a writer. But he tried everything. He's saying, I don't know the answer, but deep in my heart I know that mankind does not live in the best way possible. Well, you, you uh, were in Martin Scorsese's, one of his first films, right. Scorsese. The first Hollywood film, yeah. First Hollywood film, Boxcar Bertha. Right. Um, how'd you get involved with that? Well, you know, I worked with Roger Corman. We did a movie with him, Roger Roger Corman, and uh, the, the, the German one, huh? The German one, yeah, Van Richthofen and, and Brown and Brown. You saw that too, did, yeah, huh? Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I was in that, and afterwards, uh, uh, he, he, I was talking with him. He said, "I'm going to do this movie, Boxcar Bertha." He should be in it, and um, this is a director. I had told Mar I read it, and I thought, I'd like to do that movie, because it reminded me of my father. My father had been a salesman in the South, and if you'll notice the character of Rake, he's Jewish, and, and he says he doesn't want to open his mouth. It was like my father was a, a um, um, an immigrant, and he didn't want to open his mouth in the South, because he didn't, he didn't want any prejudice, so he was quiet. But he traveled up and down, selling contraceptives and hats in the back of the car. Contraceptives to it with my mother. And they went up and down. So 
So I told him, I told him, I was telling Roger about it. He said, Barry, go downstairs and meet this guy, Marty Scorsese. He just came from San Francisco. He showed a bunch of his shorts. And I think he showed uh, Guess Who's Knocking, a kind of a cut version of it. He's very good, he said. I think he should direct this movie. I said, okay. So I was in his house. I went down to the New World, it was called. And Marty was there, and we talked about the movie. And he came loaded with a bunch of sketches, uh, all kinds of sketches of my character. But, you know, he said, you're a person who's frightened of guns, therefore every time I see you, I'll pan up from your gun to you. Because later on, you're going to get killed by a gun. And I listened. I was very impressed with Marty. He was working for, for John Cassavetes, who was his friend, cutting husbands. That's what he was doing. And Marty didn't really want me. He wanted Seymour Cassells, who was, I think, in uh, who was in Faces. So I ended up in the movie, and we went down there, and we spent about oh about seven or eight days in a motel room, and we kind of rewrote the script. And uh, like the second day we were there, Marty took us to a movie theater and showed us his shorts. There were all those wonderful shorts, the big shade, big shade and, and all that. And, we, and I and I thought he was very talented, very talented. I told Marty, I think. Uh, when I was just working with him last year, I said, you know, when I came out of the theater seeing your movies, I remember saying to myself, this guy, this kid's got, got something. Boy, I hope he gets a chance. I told Marty that he, he laughed. So anyway, we, we redid the script, and I realized that Marty was very much in the present moment. David Carradine and I did not really, well, we liked each other, but we didn't we didn't understand each other. David Carradine was a Hollywood fan. I didn't understand him at all. I couldn't understand what he was talking about. So we used that. You know, it was like, what, 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 what do you, you know, we were like using that all, all the time. I remember I called, well, I probably shouldn't tell you that, but. No. no uh, tell us. Anyway, I remember talking, <laughs> my friend had done uh, another movie, Bloody Mama. He had done Bloody Mama, Bob De Niro, and 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 with Roger, and I, he helped me because when I went down south, I had to play a card gambler, and Bob, being the kind of actor he is, and so we don't ever talk about his research. We don't talk enough about that. He was a big research person. He used to have numbers. I said, "Am I have to play a card shark?" He said, "Card sharks." <laughs> he looked through his text. I'll get. I'll send you out to Brooklyn. I know a guy out there who's a card shark. So we rewrote it with a lot of different things in it. I quickly realized that, you know, Marty was um, infectious, just very infectious and, 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 and really infectious. And now Marty had never studied acting, but he was a, his idol was Kazan. He had never met him at that point. And his idea of real filmmaking, what he hoped to do someday was the scene in, in Taxi Cab in Waterfront. That was his and Bob De Niro's idea of what they felt zero Ground Zero was for filmmaking. That was their idea. It was before they had done anything. We, 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 he liked ties. Marty, Marty's a real fashion person. <laughs> he said a great direction to me, one of the best directions. He said, Marty doesn't direct. Marty didn't direct me, and even in New York, New York. Well, we were there for six months doing that. But he told me a great direction, and that was, I think your character, Barry, goes home and changes his clothing twice a day. And he says, I got a guy on my block like that. And I said, oh my God, great direction. If you watch me in the movie, I'm combing my hair and I'm in the jail, I'm in the swamp. 
or in jail, I'm doing that, fixing myself. I, I, I mean, it just was a great direction. It just gave me so much behavior. You know, I talk about my shoes, I improvise lines about my shoes. It just gave me this whole idea of, and of course it was Marty, you know, it had nothing to do with me, but the Italian thing from his block. It's a great direction. And the last time in, in, in Irishman, which I have, I don't know what in, who knows what I'll exist in it, because I did taxi driving with Marty, had a great scene in it, which was one of the favorite scenes, apparently, of the executives. You know, Bobby and I having a fight. We get in the car. I say, Tess, take me to Brooklyn. I say, take me to Brooklyn. He says, no, I won't. And I took a birdcage. Marty says, what's the birdcage? He says, I don't know. I think my wife threw me out, out of the house, So, but I want the birdcage. And I, he can keep the bird. But it's just a crazy. And I put a lot of stuff in the car. And then it was all shot through the mirrors. And I said, I'm not taking you to Brooklyn. I said, you take me to Brooklyn. And what happened is it sprawled out. We opened the door. It was supposed to take place in the car. We sprawled out on the street, and we fought on top of the car. And everything spilled out. And it was just a great scene. But anyhow, a day or two days before it opened, and I've already been seeing Marty at the hotel before it opens at the Reed St. Regency. We're hanging out there. But now it's going to open. So he's going to show the movie to the, everybody. It's opening the next day at that theater, the Translux, which everybody wanted their movies to be at. We're all in the room, you know, everybody. And and I see Marty he comes out of the room. He sees me, he looks at me and he runs away. I says, <laughs> and I turn to Julie and I said, I'm out of the movie. I'm cut out of the movie. Go, wait, of course I'm cut out of the movie. So he tells me, ladies, Barry, I swear to you, we did this the night before. I was down to the... I could see it in a second. I've been there, man. It's a horrible feeling. I'll probably have to do it yeah, in my own film. Too. Yeah, it's horrible. You know, it's horrible. Yeah, but you got to do what, yeah. what you got. Oh, yeah, so the other great direction he gave me wasn't... I thought, he doesn't direct. We're doing something in The Irishman. And, and, and a cop car comes. I'm paying off a cop car. So the scene is, I'm waiting, and this cop car stops. And instead of him getting out, I get out. It's kind of odd. And I walk over to him, and I give him a bundle of money. And you realize I'm, I'm paying him off so that Al Pacino, who's playing, uh, what's his name, Hoffa, will get off on this trial. I'm paying him off. But he's a long way away, so I said to Marty, Marty, I got to walk back to the car to, to the, on the highway to this cop. Isn't it going to be suspicious? You know? And Marty says, Barry, it's so corrupt, this fucking place, where you are. You don't give a shit. Nobody cares. I thought, it's a great direction. Just opened me up to how free I could be about, about everything. Didn't matter. See me, don't see me. What are you going to do about it? Right. Just yeah. a whole, it took a whole way away. Great direction. That's the kind of direction he gives. Didn't right. give any, any, didn't tell me specific. I'll tell you how Marty directed, uh, and he did this. Sit under the camera. He doesn't do that anymore because he's got this video little tent. Sit down and he would, we would start talking and, um, you know, improvising a scene like in New York. New York there's a lot of improvisation in that. Go, bring it together, bring it together. You know, that's enough of that. And I'd be improvising out of the corner of my eye. I could see Marty conducting me. <laughs> and he had this one great thing. He loved ties. And I like ties. Marty was very stylish in the way he dressed. He used to wear suits. Because he's, you know, a connoisseur of, you know, of uh, Manelli and uh, you know, George Stevens and all the great directors. 
who wore suits. Not like Kazan, Kazan took his shirt off. You know, he's, you know, he's always like, take your shirt off, your shoes off, whatever made him comfortable, you know. To him, it was, you know, a job. And he wants to be down and dirty with you, you know. But they all wore suits and ties in Hollywood. And Marty did that. Well, the first thing is he would always direct me by going over and fixing my tie. Because we would usually pick the ties together. He would say, you know, um, Liza's going to come around the corner, Barry, so, you know, just be sure you get out of the way, okay? So we can get the camera and come over and say, that was a good take. And cut that line maybe over there. So he'd play with my tie, and as he was playing with the tie, he would give me the, the direction. It just became a thing. So in Boxcar, I think I told you this, I'm sure, is that when you get older, you think you told everybody everything. I'm sure you have. So there was a tie we loved, and it was a tie with little dime, little little boxes on it. Real 1930s, totally vintage 1930s tie. And Marty said, it was a great tie. I said, what, what do you think got to do? He said, that's, that's, why, why do you want to wear it? I said, I'll wear it in the swamp scene. When I come across the swamp and I say, my shoes, remember my shoes, are, you know, you know mm. I'll wear it there. He said, good, let's do it there. Great. I'm getting excited. So I said, say to him, pass him in the hallway. I pass him in the motel. I say, tie day is coming. It's Wednesday. Get that tie out. And goes, I'll get that tie. So the scene's about the tie. So we get to the location. You know, we get all dressed. I get all dressed. I get all ready. Get ready to shoot. The location is about an hour away in the swamps of Arkansas. I mean, really, really swamps. You know. So we get there. I come out of the trailer. No tie. So I walked over to Marty's trailer. We didn't really have, we had little half trailers in the thing. I said, Marty, I don't have a tie. A tie, you bring the tie? No tie? I said, no, no tie. Get Paul Rappin, he was the AD. Get Paul Rappin, he says, Paul, what do you got to shoot? He says, right now, I want to shoot something. He says, we got this, we could shoot the car and then we could shoot, you know, maybe the opening of a door or something. He says, shoot that and send him, send that guy back. Get that fucking tie for Barry, you know. So we waited, he went, they drove all the way back, he got the tie. And I thought, it's great direction. Great direction. He certainly knows the world he's in. He knows all that, he knows the world. And then Bobby De Niro said a great thing about Marty. He said, when you're in a movie with Marty, you know you'll be okay, because he's going to use you. Whatever way you want to do it, it's going to happen. You know? It's going to be okay. It's going right. to be okay. Yeah. So we'll see if I'm in uh, Irishman or not. I don't, I don't know. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, I look forward to see it. Yeah. Well, Mar Marty was going to make a movie before all this. It was called Gaga. I mean, shit face in Italian. Brian De Palma called me. I had been in a movie called Been Down So Long with your father. Been Down So Long. He said to me, there's a part in this movie by this director who knows more about movies than anybody alive except Bertolucci. I said, oh, well, I'd like to meet him. So I met Marty for a moment at Warner Brothers, and he was going to make this movie about God. God was about a guy who's selling good humor ice cream. He's crazy, and he machine guns people. So the gang wants to get rid of him, so they sent him to Miami. So he said, you're gonna, you're gonna, Marty was, you know, so I met Marty. Then about a week later, I was out in Margot Kidder's house, out in Trancas. And I was sitting on the beach with Chief Dan George, who I remember. And sitting next to Chief Dan George was a naked girl. 
the teacher and George was telling her about what it was like to be an Indian and you know and all that. And he was a little big man, you know. And he was talking to her and she was looking at that. And I was sitting on the beach thinking, you know, actually um uh who was around all the time was uh, Paul Schrader. He was trying to sell this movie called Taxi. Taxi driver. He was always around. I looked in the water and this guy waves at me. So he waves at me. He drank us in the ocean. So I wave back. So later on, I think Brian was there, Brian DePalma said, we were there. Somebody said, hey, there's Marty. Marty, you maybe seen Barry or something like that? And Marty looks at me very angry. He says, what the fuck is the matter with you? I'm drowning and you wave back at me? <laughs> I said, what? He said, I was drowning, man. <laughs> he said, I thought you were waving at me. So that's, that's, how I, that's how my first confrontation with Marty.